Would you join me in prayer, please? Father God, we ask that you impart your Holy Spirit to us right now to illuminate your word. We pray that we would see Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And that, Lord, you would show us through the word how you can take something that is absolutely worthless and turn it into something of great price because of the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. May we give you honor. May we give you worship because of that. May it fill our souls knowing the great love that can only come from a doting father. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you would, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Last week, we began seeing how Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven in detail. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that despite whether or not his contemporaries recognized it, Jesus was and he is the rightful king over all creation. He has been reigning ever since before time began. But there is rebellion in his kingdom through sin. And the work of our Lord upon the earth will restore the kingdom to its original state of perfection. So while Jesus still reigns, there is a not yet aspect to his kingdom that has been marred by the sin of humanity. We refer to this final state of perfection as the eschatological kingdom. The final result of Jesus' completed work, his drawing of people to himself and the coming judgment for sin. And we should ask ourselves, what does that future kingdom look like? How do we become citizens within that kingdom? What are our relationships? What do they look like with one another? And what is it that our king values within his kingdom? Jesus was revealing all of this as he approaches the cross that awaits him in Jerusalem. Last week, we saw that the kingdom of heaven is unlike the power structures upon the earth. Unlike the leaders of this world, our king treasures people and concepts that the world does not value. So, for example, we saw that Jesus values the marriage covenant. Now, to be honest, so did the emperor Caesar Augustus, but he valued it for different reasons. Augustus issued an edict encouraging marriage because the male members under his rule were living lascivious lifestyles, refusing to marry and produce legitimate Roman citizens. But Jesus values marriage because it represents a perfect love. The once and for all, one flesh covenant that he has with his bride, the church, for all of eternity. We saw that Jesus valued the eunuchs and, and those who chose to remain single for the kingdom of heaven. We saw how he valued children and, and parenting that sought his blessing. We even saw how he valued the rich young man's soul over his personal wealth and his obedience. Jesus also revealed that one day in the future of his kingdom, his disciples, former fishermen and tax collectors, former zealots and doubters will sit on thrones and judge the house of Israel. Jesus turns the values of this world's kingdom upside down. When he cares, what he cares about is just so unlike what the world cares about. And to demonstrate this, Jesus provides us the last quote of Matthew chapter 19. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, what we're about to read next is an illustration of this concept. 
The first words in Matthew 20 are, for the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus will present us a parable that teaches us what he means when he says the first will be last and the last first. Now, before we get into that, I I need to talk a little bit about the structure of this chapter. How Matthew arranges his report of these events is going to prove this concept of the first, last, and last first. And I think knowing where we're headed will help emphasize this principle here. Immediately after this parable, Jesus will predict his death and resurrection once again. No one would think that a king would assume his throne by being tried and executed as a criminal. It is certainly a case of the last becoming first. And then that prediction is followed by a request from the mother of James and John. It comes at a rather inopportune time after this prediction, or perhaps we might say an act of providence. She is jockeying for prestige for her sons by trying to cut the line, so to speak, and request that her kids have the privilege of sitting at the favored positions of the right and left-hand side of Jesus' throne. Now, most likely, she heard Jesus speak about those 12 thrones back in chapter 19, verse 28. And she wants to make sure that her sons have the best seats in the house. She's an example of someone that wants to see the first be first. And Jesus will have to give another lesson on how one becomes first by being last. And finally, the chapter concludes with the Lord of the universe having compassion upon two blind beggars, restoring their sight because they acknowledge that the one who came to be last is actually the first. Now, I want to make sure this principle is firmly in our minds as we make our way through this passage. So now let's return to the parable at the opening of the chapter. And we can see it in three movements here. The the arrangement with the first workers, and then second, the additional workers, and then the payout. We'll work our way through that movement, and at the end of it, we need to carefully think about the perspective of how we are to view this story, because it's going to make all the difference in our interpretation. And that perspective should challenge our thinking and quite possibly modify the way that we're living our lives. Let's take it from the beginning here. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, there are three data points here to note as we begin. First, the primary character here that is consistent throughout the story is the master of the vineyard. We're going to see that the emphasis should be upon him. Second is that He is hiring workers for a full day's labor in the vineyard. Now, we could presume that this is harvest time, and the master wants to take advantage of the ideal conditions to harvest the fruit. So he begins to work early in the day. A a typical working day was sun up to sundown, a total of 12 hours during the harvest time. You began at dawn, usually at the first hour at 6 a.m., and you worked till dusk. And third... There is an agreed-upon wage with these workers. For 12 hours' work, they will receive one denarius. Now, a denarius was a common daily wage for a common foot soldier in the Roman Empire. And yet, it was slightly more than what an unskilled laborer received. So, the master was paying his workers above average for one 12-hour day. They were getting a pretty good deal here. So, a little later in the morning... The third hour being about 9 a.m., the master goes to the marketplace and he finds additional workers who have nothing to do. 
So he offers to hire them. Now, note that he doesn't arrange a set price for them. He merely says, whatever is right, I will give to you. Apparently, the master was an extremely trustworthy individual for these workers to take him at his work. Considering that he's paying slightly more than the average wage, maybe he had a reputation of, of being fair, and the workers would know he would compensate them appropriately. Now, this didn't just happen once, but according to verse 5, he does this twice more. He goes out at 12 o'clock, the sixth hour, and then at 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, and hires more workers based upon the same principle. I can only imagine what the earlier field hands were thinking as they continued to see more and more workers appealed. Most likely their thought was going, man, the master really wants to see this field picked quickly. He wants them to get the work done today. And then the kicker is in verse 6. It's the 11th hour, 5 p.m., just one hour before sundown, one more hour that could be worked. And the master comes across additional workers and he wants to know why they are idle. And they reply, because no one has hired us. Now, probably these would have been the workers that had been overlooked by other owners because they appeared either weak or, or perhaps they were viewed as lazy or untrustworthy. And no one wanted them. They were the stragglers. These were men who were probably wondering how they're going to provide for their families since they lost a day's labor. But the master of the vineyard has work, therefore he hires the whole ragtag bunch of them. So now we are at the moment of anticipation when everyone gets paid. Verse 8 says it's evening time, and the master orders his foreman to line up the workers to pay them. And notice the instructions here beginning with the last up to the first. So the guy who worked only one hour, or the guys who worked only one hour, are at the front of the line. And, and imagine their surprise at being given a whole denarius for only one hour's worth of work. I would think they're joyful, and they're celebrating. They, they are in awe of the owner's generosity. If I was one of the guys that began at 6 a.m. and I'm watching this, I would have been excited with anticipation, thinking, all righty then. Maybe the master's going to give out a denarius per hour here. But then the other guys get paid. And those that only worked three hours, then six hours, then nine hours, each gets only a single denarius. But still, they each were getting way more than they deserve for a day's worth of work. They have no reason to complain. But still, the 6 a.m. crew was thinking, well, surely we're going to get paid more. We worked the entire day. So we read in Matthew chapter 20, verse 10, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only a, one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. <laughs> Man, if that had been us, as soon as they put that single denarius in our hand, what would have been your first thought? I know mine. That's not fair! And like them, I would have pointed out what I did to justify myself. I worked from sun up. I worked in the heat of the day. Master, don't you see the, the sweat stains here? Don't you see my sunburn? Can't you see I'm in dehydration right now? It's not fair! 
And look, you gave all these other guys a denarius too. And here's the kicker, the phrase that rankles every one of us. You have made these others equal to us. Equal. Now I'm going to step on some toes about what I'm going to say next, so feel free to hide them under the pews right now. We talk a lot about equality in the United States, but I'm pretty sure that overall, we really don't like to be equal with everyone else. If everything was equal, then there would be no way to distinguish ourselves from others. In fact, we have entire political parties that challenge the concept of equality. Either uh, they want taxation to be equal across the board, or they want equal distribution on the other side. We don't really like enforcing a concept of equality. When was the last time you liked being told, or you were content being told, hey, you are average? Maybe it's your last cholesterol reading? (laughs) I doubt you want to hear your average from your coach or from your employer. And when you do hear that, immediately you want to go into prove-yourself mode. You want to outwork your fellow workers. You want to out-hustle your teammates to show that you are not average because deep down, we really don't like being equal. We want to distinguish ourselves. It's the way that we matter in the world. And the way we know that we are above average, that we're not equal, is by the way we are rewarded. We can certainly look down upon others that we consider to be inferior to us. We always assume that someone else's circumstances is due to their poor choices. At times, that can be true. But many times, we just have the attitude of the Pharisees that watched a woman anoint Jesus with oil at one of their dinner parties. And we have that attitude of Luke 7, 39. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. Certainly no equality of gracious affair. And we certainly don't like being thought less than someone else. Nor do we like having less. When there's an imbalance in our life with someone else, that's when we want equality. And you might say, well, speak for yourself, Blair. I'm fine with it. I don't mind others having more than me or or being better than me. Okay then why did God have to provide us with the 10th commandment not to covet? How many of us have resented the really good player that's on the other team? The girl that never seems to study and always makes A's. The classmate that always has all the girls desiring him. Or the guy that drives by in his sports car in the moment. Or the friend that shows up and and begins to brag about all of her children's accomplishments. Why do we sell so many magazines about celebrity gossip? Now, please don't get me wrong. I like equality. I want to work and live in a nation where everyone can have equal opportunities to achieve in life. But I know the reality of our sinful hearts. We can easily feel mistreated or or unfair when we think the circumstances are against us personally. We immediately want to right the ship as these workers thought they were being mistreated here. 
But in this parable, the master was not being unfair. In fact, he states the truth of the matter, verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? He points out the facts. We had an agreement. This is what you agreed to do. This is what I agreed to pay you. I have fulfilled my end of the bargain. In fact, he acknowledges they deserve the denarius based upon their work. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. But he also states an additional truth. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Would anyone doubt that it was the master's money to do with as he pleases? He can bless whomever he wants to bless simply because he is generous. And most likely, these are the words of Jesus, not necessarily the character of the master from the story. Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. He is reinforcing his lesson from chapter 19, verse 30. Now, from our Western 21st century perspective, particularly from those of us that deeply believe in private ownership, we would say, yes, it's your money to do with as you please, but, but you are being unwise here. You're going to teach these men that it's okay to be lazy, that they can just wait till the end of the day and do only one hour's work and get paid the same as everyone else. Isn't that teaching irresponsibility? Perhaps. If the master in the story was consistent enough in this practice, it might be one of those cases when helping hurts. But we need to gain a different perspective and not try to read our sense of fair and unfair into the story. The master asked the workers, do you begrudge my generosity? You see, all throughout the day, it was the owner of the field that picked the workers. Had he not had property, had he no crops to pick, had he not the means to pay them, there would have been no opportunity for any of the workers. Had he not hired them, no one would have received anything at all. The master was under no obligation to hire any of them. We forget the one who is doing the blessing. We forget the single fact that if there is anything that is equally true about all of us is that we are all sinners. None of us deserves anything at all from our gracious and good God. Each of us has rebelled against him by choosing the manner of life that we want to live rather than what he commanded us. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has been encouraging religious people who like to think they were better or more righteous than others or that they were entitled to certain things by God because of their bloodline or obedience. He's been encouraging them to think differently. Think about me. They, they liked to flaunt their wealth and their power in front of others to show how they had arrived. They thought they were still righteous even when they found loopholes in the law. We've seen examples of that already in the Pharisees testing Jesus about divorce for any cause at the beginning of chapter 19. Or the young man with great wealth who thought he could obtain eternal life through moral obedience. It's no coincidence that in Matthew's arrangement that he has wedged between this parable and James and John's attempt to acquire seats of power that we have Jesus foretelling his reason for traveling to Jerusalem once again. The Son of Man 
very God himself will be delivered into the hands of these same self-righteous, self-important men. The one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, yet he is the Lord's servant. He will be condemned to death by these mere men. And this faithful Jew, in fact, the only one to obey the law with absolute perfection, both in deed and in heart, will be handed over to the unclean Gentiles and be made even less important. He will be despised, rejected, acquainted with grief, And the Gentiles will mock him, and they will flog him, and then they will crucify him. And as he hangs on the cross, he will receive the full penalty of sin for his elect. He who knew no sin will become sin for us, so that we might be called the righteousness of God. He didn't deserve this. He committed no sin. And he poured out his soul to death and was murdered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He will grant his personal righteousness, his right standing before the Father to all who believe in him by faith. That means if you are a believer in Christ, when the Father looks upon you, he dotes upon you as he would his own son, giving you access to the kingdom as a peer, not as a peon. God has made the rebel who was last equal to the first. You you can't get any higher reward than to have the same loving status that the Father gives the Son. There's nothing else higher. The point of the parable is that Jesus is revealing the graciousness of the Father. It's not that he rewards good behavior or righteous behavior as as a filthy rag in front of him. We want to make our standing before him about what we deserve. Shouldn't we be first, Jesus? We did all of this for you. Yet despite any such performance, he lavishes his grace and mercy upon all of us within his kingdom. None of us measures up. Only Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian from age seven or if you became one today. The blessing is the same for each of us. All of Christ is yours in Christ. I've been trying to to think more about this parable personally, and I tend to find myself looking at it more from the perspective of the workers. I mean, I can get so angry about things that I think are unfair. I'll give you just a brief example of one. Amelia and I were making our way back from Florida. We were in the car together. We had just dropped off Ella, and we pulled into McDonald's, that great establishment of nourishment when you're in a hurry and on the run. And it was one of those McDonald's, you know, that has the, the two lanes that you can go in to be able to pull into it. And so uh, I'm like the second car in, and there's an SUV that's kind of parked right in front of us. And the SUV is kind of waiting to see which car is going to go first, the next one, right? So it's kind of like not really all the way in the, the outer lane. And so I'm sitting in the second car. We're just patiently waiting. And then all of a sudden, this other car goes, vroom, zips right into that outer second lane, cutting in front of about five other cars behind us at that time. And I looked at a million. I said, oh, I got to get out. 
I was getting ready to go up to the window of this person and bless them. <laughs> bless them with a lesson about what is fair and unfair. And all Amelia did was just kind of reach over to me. She goes, oh, please, Dad, don't. 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 And so I'm, I'm doing all I can as, as he's doing there. I, he's got tinted windows, but I hope he's looking at me, and I'm giving him the, the dirty look in that moment. I mean, all, all, all the way up to it, I, I wanted to tell the lady when I got up to the little order, I mean, I, really, the thought came through my head. Make him wait. Make him pull over into that other side until all the rest of us go by until you deliver his food out to him. That bothered me. It bothered me that I couldn't settle my heart in such a moment. It's just a drive-through at McDonald's. When I watched and saw him pull up, he, he was handing his ha a, a Happy Meal. That was all he was getting was a Happy Meal. And it looked like he was passing it back to a kid in the back. Maybe he had some screaming kid in the background. I don't know. But I wanted in that moment what was fair. I can be so guilty of being resentful when I don't feel others have worked as hard as me. I can be guilty of holding grudges against people that I should forgive even though I have received so much grace. I can be guilty of feeling like this world that God has created, that God has placed me in, that God is controlling, that he is being unfair to me because things aren't working out the way that I would run them. But when I step back and I consider his perspective, I understand much clearer. Don't you realize you have no right to stand before him at all in your own merit? Amen. Nor is he even looking for your merit or performance. You are his child because he loves you, and he and the son executed a plan that could reconcile you to him. He loves you because he has declared it as a God of perfect love. What grace, what mercy it takes me from the place of Lord, when am I going to get what's mine? Not just to being able to say, well, I'm just happy to be in the room, but to move me to a place to declare that surely his goodness and his mercy will follow me all the days of my life for all of eternity. Have you been a lifelong Christian? Then I want to encourage you, make sure you're last. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. If you are a believer in Christ, imitate your Savior. Be a person of humility. Be a person of grace because of what he's done for you. Value the position of being last. 
And perhaps, friend, this is your 11th hour. The master is calling you to the harvest. Will will you respond and follow? It's not too late. Today can be the day of salvation for you. The reward for coming to him is more than money. It's a price that can't be named. Your willingness to submit to him, to confess your sin before him, to admit your need of the son's atonement on the cross, where you acknowledge his great worth above your own, do so, and you will find a loving father that desires to pour out grace and mercy beyond measure, to call you his child for all of eternity, and to allow you to bask in the presence of his son, Jesus. Today can be that day for you if you will bend the knee and believe that Jesus Christ can save you. If that is you, if that is what you are desiring, I'm going to ask you to speak to a Christian in this room today. Now, we don't do altar calls here at Providence, mainly because they can appear that someone other than Christ is doing the work of redemption. The sinner who comes or the pastor in the front who prays. And they can also be kind of emotionally manipulative. We want to make sure that the work of Christ in your life is genuine. So if you are allured by Jesus, if you are being enticed by his love, if you are desiring his mercy, today is the day that you need to speak to someone. More than just for the period of just a few verses of a hymn, you need to dialogue with a believer in Christ about how he saves and what that looks like. If that is you, I am simply going to ask you to talk to the person that brought you here. And if no one brought you here, I am more than willing to talk to you myself. I'll be standing in the back. My friend Brian, he's going to be up here in the front. But I can also tell you that any believer in this room would delight to be able to share with you about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Brothers and sisters, for the rest of us, I'm going to ask if you would. I know that you got up earlier today than you did yesterday. But I'm going to ask that you sing the next hymn with such gusto that the person who is considering whether or not they want that, that they would see within you and your enthusiasm of your Savior, that they would ask you, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I I am so grateful that through your word, you can release so much angst inside of us, Lord, when we feel like we're not being appreciated, when we feel like, like we are not being put on the pedestal like we want to, that, that sometimes, Lord, even when we just feel like life is being unfair to us, that you remind us through passages such as today that you have a much bigger plan and that you actually work through the position of being last. And that through that position, your glory can shine through as you uphold us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to be faithful to whatever you are calling us to today. Whether that, Lord, is to bear reproach for your name, whether that is to endure persecution, 
whether that is to simply say, in our pride, to say, Lord, I'm wrong, and I need you. I need something and something bigger to run my life and rule my life because I've made a mess of it. Lord, whatever you are calling us to, allow us to be faithful in such a moment. And as we do so, Lord, may we find the true anchor of our souls, that Jesus Christ has bought us, and because he has, he has made us so secure in your presence that there is no doubt that when the storms come, that when life seems unfair, and it seems like we're not getting what we truly deserve, that you remind us that everything we have is all found in Christ Jesus. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.